0: That there is a wrath or a justice stored up against anyone who sins. Now, if you pause right there, that's really intense to hear, right? But if we look at it, we we say we, we would want to, even if you don't believe in God, you would want to believe that there is someone who is holding a cosmic justice towards evil. You want a God, you want someone who wants to punish wrongdoing. But God might have to start with me first looking at my heart or my actions or my deeds. In this passage, it's telling us that God has to deal with evil because he's good. And so what's not good must be dealt with by God. And God's telling us in this passage, he's got to deal with our hearts. He's telling us the condition of our hearts, the cancer of sin that's in us is deserving of some sort of consequence. And it's God's holy punishment. And again, here's the beauty of Christianity is that God doesn't want to give it to you. He wants to give it to Jesus in your place. He wants to pour out this wrath on Jesus so that you can be avoided from it, to be rescued from it. This is a really hard teaching with Christianity. This makes people uh, want to walk away from the faith or maybe not even enter into the faith. But I want you to tell you that in your hearts, you do actually want a God who hates evil and wants to fix the brokenness of evil in this world. Our hearts do actually want justice to be served, but if we're honest, we just don't want it to be served with us. And Paul's telling us that because of Jesus, in a moment we'll get to, because of Jesus, God can deal with our sin and God can pour out his punishment towards our sin to Jesus so that we're loved and forgiven. You know what that means for you, Christian? the good news for you is that the guilt and shame you may feel for whatever you've done in this life, you don't have to carry that guilt or shame. No matter what you've said to your spouse, cheated at work, whatever you've done with your finances, whatever you've done to a past relationship or a person, that God takes that. And rather than you having to live with your shame and guilt for the rest of your life, God can take that, forgive you of it, and then heal you from it. This is what we're saved from. It's punishment, but we're also saved from its power. Did you see what this verse said? Let me read to you again. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then here's the power of sin. Look, you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. This word followed here that we see is not just you like kind of like aimlessly walking. It's that you, you kind of, you were compelled you will have an impulse to follow something that's leading you away from God's ways. Guys, the the consequence of having spiritual uh, condition like sin is that you want to choose things that are not often best for you. You, you, If if you've known a friend or a family member who has maybe a a mental health condition, they have dementia, you know that some of their challenge is not like they're choosing to think this way or to speak this way it's an effect of a condition that's happening within them. And this passage is telling us that sin is similar. It has a power over us. It, it causes us to follow the course of this world that often doesn't follow the course that God has for their good. We, we also learned that we're following this prince of the power of the air. Now that sounds really extreme, but it, it shows that we're following this evil draw away from God and his ways and that it's at work in us is what this passage says. It's not just around us, but the, the, the sinful cancer that is in us leads us away from God's will. It's in us, not just around us, but it's in us. And God is telling us through Paul, hey, here's your condition. You're separated from me. You're separated from love and forgiveness and grace and truth. And this condition is causing you to follow things that are not for your good. So it gets even worse, the... the The third S we see is the self. God is saying in this passage, something about ourself that we are shackled to our impulses and our unwise reasoning. Man, this is just a hard way to start out a message, guys. If I were to preach anything after my 33rd birthday, it would not be this. I don't want, don't find excitement in telling you all the bad things. I I would hate to be a doctor just telling you, here's your condition, here's your condition, here's your condition. But that just makes the good news that much greater when you know what you've been saved from. So let's keep pushing through friends. This text tells us that we've gotta be saved from the self. And this is really hard and totally not modern to think about. Look at verse two and three again. It says, we lived to follow the passions of our flesh, which means the impulses of our desires is what that means. That we live to follow, we're sort of forced to follow the impulses of our desires. And we carry out the desires of our body and the mind. Man, can you think about that? There, that means that there's something at work in us that causes us to want to follow our sexual impulses. It wants us to carry out our anger, it wants us to follow our jealousy and our pride. And like that's in us, like that's inside of us. It's the self. Our self is shackled to impulses and unwise reasoning that's not good for us just like I shared, and I've had family members that had dementia and and severe uh, health and mental health complications, And you watch that and you know that they're not wanting or choosing to do, there's sort of impulses that are happening because of the brokenness of that condition. And Paul's telling us that there's a condition in us that causes us to do the same. We think something might be wise in our relationship with our boyfriend or our girlfriend or work. and, And we think it's best for us. And we're kind of tricked into thinking that it's right. And so we might do X, Y, and Z in our marriage or with our finances or with our life or whatever it might be because we trust our impulses. And God's telling us that, hey, our impulses are programmed to this broken hardwiring that's inside of us. And so what God is whispering in our ear is, hey, there, there's, an, there's another way to live. And there's, there's something else that can help repair this. There's something else that can fix it. But I got to tell you all the bad news first, Right. And then we see the last thing here. So we see separation, we see sin, we see self. And then we see Satan in this passage. Verse two, it tells us, and we followed, now guys, listen, this is either knowingly or unknowingly. This is what's happened. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We can get to it with more continued messages and we can take a whole several unit and just talk about, are there spiritual beings? Are there angels or are there demons? And that's hard for us modern thinkers to even think through those things. But if there was someone such as good as a God, then there might be something also as evil as an enemy. And so in this passage, it tells us that whether we knowingly or unknowingly did this, we begin to follow his schemes in the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. Not the king, Jesus, but some evil prince at work known as Satan. And his plan in human history is to lead us away from God's plan for human flourishing and away from God's glory. So guys, anytime we chose to sin, harm a neighbor, say an unkind word, cheat, steal, look at pornography, sexual outlets that were hurtful to others or in your marriage. Anytime we did that, we're following secretly these schemes of the enemy, guys. This is super weighty, and what we're learning in this passage is that this is what Jesus wants to save humanity from. All of humanity wants to save us from separation from God, where everything we long for finds its fulfillment in Him. Tells us that we're, we're, we have we have a sin problem. It, there's a punishment for us. There's a power in our life. We learn that ourself we're following these impulses in the world. Now we're learning that there's someone behind the scenes that's causing us to go away from. God and our own human flourishing. This is what Jesus has come to save us from. And if you were to look at your own life, and if we're really honest with ourselves, we can get to a point to say, you know what? I may not be the worst of the worst person in the entire world, but there's something broken in me. I can see the spiritual condition in my life. Can you guys look at your own life and can you see some of these spiritual conditions we just talked about? these impulses that you've chosen, you thought it was going to be good for you. But then in hindsight, you're like, ooh, that was a bad decision. Can anyone just be honest and say like, I've done that with my life. You thought it was good. Maybe you talked to some friends, you did it. You're like, ooh, that was not good. And that left a scar in my life. That's part of this. And so rather than God just leaving us there or calling us out, he's saying like a good doctor, here's your condition. And I want to step in and help. So number two, What are we saved by? That's what we're saved from, but what are we saved by? Is there any help for humanity or for us? And the good news is that after all this terrible news, we have this giant um, shaking voice that tells in verse four, but God being rich in mercy. And this is supposed to be a breath of fresh air for us. Cool glass of water, this phrase. We just talked about wrath, sin, and Satan. If you, P.S., if you want to ever try to grow a church, this is not how you do it. You want to do a church plant? You don't talk about sin because it's challenging for us to hear the condition, but there can't be help for humanity if we don't know what condition we're in and we don't know the point of Jesus in the first place. So what do we save by? Verse four, look at it again. It says these beautiful words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even, I love this part, even when we were dead, not when we got our life together, when we started going to church, when we started praying, when we started acting moral, when we voted right, we put signs in our yard, we wore the right clothes. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, our rebellion against God, even when we were doing that, what did God do? He came to us and he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Guys, this is crazy to think about. Anytime we've gone to the hospital, um, I get migraines frequently. I know that some of us in our church get migraines. Maybe I'm the one causing you migraines. Who knows? We'll see. But if you think about going to the doctor, your doctor's always telling you, here's what's wrong. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to take. Here's what needs to happen in your life. Life. Here's the steps you must follow. What are the steps that you must do in this passage? None. Our job is to receive something that's done for us. God sees us in our broken condition. He comes into the room. He tells you these terrible conditions. It leads your heart to say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And then he says, I'm rich in mercy I have great love to you. Even when you're dead in this condition, I'm gonna make you alive with me. I'm gonna grant you grace so that you can believe and trust in me. Guys, if there's one thing God the doctor is telling us with our condition is simply receive, simply believe. You don't got to go to church. You don't got to say a prayer. You don't got to read your Bible. You don't got to do anything that fixes this condition. The only thing that fixes this condition is Jesus Christ on the cross, forgiving and canceling this power of sin that's in your life. And when you trust and believe, it changes everything. Your identity, your health condition towards sin, your relationship with God, what you begin to seek and long for to fix or repair the things that are broken, it fixes everything. But God being rich in mercy That changes it all. So if I were to knock this or or, uh, unpack this in a few things, you're saved by four things, as this passage tells us. You're saved, number one, by God, period. You're saved by God. Not you, not your religion, not moralism, not your good intent, not your political activism. God saves alone. And you place your faith and trust in him. See, the difference between gospel Christianity and any other world religion is that we see something that we base our hearts on. It's either God or self. That's the difference between the gospel Christianity and any other religion. Any other religion says you must do, must act, must try to get yourself to this point. And the gospel in Christianity says that God did all of it for you. You simply are to receive and believe. That's what the word grace means. You're saved by grace. Grace. It's a gift. It's free. God purchased. He worked for it. He earned it up and he gave it to you and says, I want to fix and love and care and give you everything that you were designed to be in me. This is the beauty of what this is. God is the one that saves. The only thing we're called to do is believe it and receive it. Let me define what I mean real quick by religion. When we talk about world religions, uh, religion is simply just a way to make yourself good or right before God. That's what that term means. It just is a way to make yourself be good or look good before God. Religion views teachings of Christianity merely as a moral code so that you can obey God and so that he won't punish you. That's what people think religion is. The gospel, on the other hand, is the good news about how God loves you because of what Jesus has done for you and not because of what you have done for him. If you were to give religion and gospel just one sentence, here's what it'd be. Religion says this, I obey God, therefore he loves me. But the gospel says this, God loves me, therefore I want to obey him. See the difference? Religion's always about you trying to do something to appease what you think is this angry wrathful God. And if I just do enough, then maybe he'll love me or forgive me. But the gospel in Christianity says, there's nothing you could do to appease this God. So therefore he did it all for you and you simply receive it and you enjoy him because he's the one that wants a relationship with you. Guys, this is why Jesus in the New Testament is always confronting this counterfeit spirituality known as religion. In the New Testament's full of stories where Jesus is telling countless religious leaders of his day. He says, guys, your hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty and clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Jesus is always confronting this idea of religion. So let me ask you a question. Can you spot counterfeit Christianity in your own heart and in the world? Can you spot counterfeit Christianity? Because there is a counterfeit Christianity that looks much like the real thing. Counterfeit Christianity might be more prevalent than the real Christianity. Today, maybe even at our church gathering right now or people that are joining us online, there could be two people sitting side by side. On the surface, they look the same. They both say they believe the Bible. They maybe financially contribute to the church. They both pray every day. Yet they could be doing this with two completely different views of how Christianity, what it means and how God works. One may view God as a tyrant, We have to appease him through our good behavior. But the other view is God is a loving father who is quick to forgive and that has done all the moralism for them in what Jesus did with his life to be your record by faith. There's a difference between gospel Christianity and religious Christianity. Again, religious Christianity is about achieving a moral standing with God by our efforts and actions. But the real gospel, what we see in the Bible, looks to Jesus to achieve our moral standing with God. And it's by his efforts and his actions that are accredited to us. And that's how God sees you. That's what this whole passage is about. You are saved by God, not by self, period. Number two, we're saved by God through his mercy. We see in verse four, it says, but God being rich in Mercy, do you guys know what that definition of mercy is scripturally speaking? Mercy is the extension of compassion or forgiveness towards someone who's harmed you when it was in with, within your power to punish or harm them. And think about that again with your relationship with God, Christian, think about this. Mercy is the extension of compassion or forgiveness towards someone who harmed you when it was in your power to punish or harm them. This shows us that our sin, in fact, guys, was an affront to God, And he's telling us that in this passage. He's saying that I had to give you mercy. You harmed me. You sinned against me. You, you went against and, and you defamed my glory. You're made my image and you're supposed to represent me, but you did the very opposite. And so God said, you're in need of mercy. And God said, I'm rich with it. I love that. God was rich with compassion and forgiveness towards you. And he's like that every day towards you, Christian. So listen, you might might understand what I'm saying today and you genuinely trust in Jesus, but daily you really struggle with this because if you sin one time, you beat yourself up like there wasn't even a God. You're so disappointed with yourself. You're so frustrated at yourself when you fail at work or you disappoint your wife or your kids and you act like there is no God to forgive you. So therefore you gotta clean yourself up before your wife or your kids. You gotta do better. You gotta try harder the next day to earn your way back to this place. And my friends, what we learn here is that God is rich in mercy that cares for the poverty of your sin. So my friends, when we may return over and over again to the same types of sin, God returns to you over and over and over with mercy. He doesn't get tired of you. He doesn't get weary with you. He doesn't want to quit you. In fact, God's the one that actually tells you to keep coming to him. Those who are weary, heavy laden, he loves when sinners come To him, Guys, in fact, I've been reading this book. I actually finished the book a little while ago, but reading this book called Gentle and Lowly. And there's something about the passage uh, that the book was referencing that talked about our sin is like an aroma before God. And if you're a Christian, that aroma is almost like a flare signal to God saying, I need help. So rather than God coming to condemn you, he wants to come and comfort you and bring you out of that place of why you sinned in the first place and bring you to a point of not condemnation telling you, you did terrible. I told you, I found you out, I'm after you. It's like God did to Adam in the garden said, hey, where are you? Everything that you're looking for that calls you to go to that place of sin is in me. And so our sin is like a flare signal to God And God wants to come and rescue us from that place that was never to fulfill us, never to help us, never to give us hope, never give us life. And he wants to bring us out of that spot. Do you see God like that, friends? Or do you see him as an angry tyrant that's always just ready to get you when you sin? Maybe that's just a a shadow of your parent and how they treated you when you did wrong or a teacher or a guardian, but God is not that way. God is rich with Mercy, rich, overflowing with it. I shared this analogy beforehand. uh, um, um, Halloween's right around the corner, right? And we talked about how you see kids with all of this candy in their lap. It's all in their arms and they can't hold it. There's so much of it. This is how rich God's mercy is. There's so much of it. He doesn't hold it. It falls out onto our life, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what's happened. This is what's rich to you. My friend who's dealing with guilt, shame, regret, This is the hope you have. God's not angry, disappointed with you because you're in him and he's rich in mercy towards you. So we see we're saved by God. We're saved by God's mercy. We're saved by God's love is number three. We're saved by his love. And again, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When did he love us? Not when you got your stuff together. It was even when we were dead in our trespasses. Guys, let me ask you a question, own application for your own life. How do you love others when they sin against you? That's how you think God treats you. If someone sins against you and you're like, man, I just can't hang out with them anymore. I wanna go to a different community group. I'm gonna leave churches. I'm gonna not be their roommates anymore. How do you treat them when they sin against you is how you think God treats you. Guys, if we're honest, if we look at this, this is a powerful love is that God didn't love you when you did something, He loved you when you were dead in sin against him, not wanting him. And he came to you and loved you then. This is what saved you. It was God, his mercy, his love. And then we see number four, we see his grace. What does grace mean? Look at verse four again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's saying that everything beforehand is grace. God in your life is grace. Grace. The riches of his mercy are grace. The love in which he has towards you is grace. God making you alive with him when you were dead and separated is God's grace. All of this that God did is grace. It's free, it's open to anyone everywhere. This is the best hope ever. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to grow up with a certain background. You don't have to have a Bible. Anyone can get in on this. It is amazing to think about who we serve or who we have as a God. Anyone's welcome. In fact, you know what he loves most? The broken, damaged, rebellious folks like me. That's who God comes after because why they know their heart condition. And so they're ready for a savior. Guys, I I want us to, guys, I, I wish you could see this. It would help your perfectionism, it would help your moralism, it would help how you treat your spouse and your kids and your boss when they sinned against you. If you know your heart condition, but that you are loved and everything you have is a gift of grace by God, it changes everything for you. You can release those that have been in your clutch of bitterness, you can release it. Even the fact that if someone has sinned against you, one day you trust that this God is gonna deal with that sin and that person in his way of justice one day. Guys, the most freeing thing about what we believe is that God has given us everything freely. And that changes who you are and how you interact with others. Guys, do you see this? I know this is familiar for many of us Christians, but it hasn't maybe sunk down to our life yet. You have been saved. All of this is by God's grace. It's a gift to us. And in contrast, we see this. We're saved not by works, Our own doing. Did you guys notice that in verse 8 and 9? It's super crucial. We saw our condition, what we're saved from. We're seeing what we're saved by, but then he Paul really wants to make it really clear: what are we not saved by? He says this verse 8. Look at it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So you've got to have faith in Jesus to receive these things. Have faith that He died on the cross for you. Have faith that you know that this is your heart's condition. And you're having faith saying, God, I believe that you can change my heart's condition. You can change and forgive me. This is what faith means. For by grace, you have been saved through your faith in him. And this, all of this, including grace and faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Can I just pause for a moment and show you how powerful this is? What is the this referring to in this verse? It says, and this is not your own doing. What is that referring to? This is really powerful when you see it. The this that's not your own doing is both the grace, the saving, and the faith. It's gonna blow your mind when you think about this. That means the faith that you have put in Jesus, Christian, was even a gift from God. Like God gave you the faith to where you could even put it in him. That's even a grace because how can a dead person believe? How can a dead person walk with God? So God even does CPR, spiritual CPR to our hearts and he actually gives us faith, which is a grace. And we take the faith that he's given us and we put it back in him. God has done all of this powerful work. And yes, we're still called to believe. We're still called to have faith. But guess what? That faith was still a gift from God. Because remember, we were following our impulses. We're following what we want to believe. And God had to do something in us to change the course of what we thought was good and right or wise. So if you're a Christian, yes, you did place your faith in Jesus. Yes, you did it with your free will. Yes, you did that. But how did he do that? It was God's grace to give you faith. And all of this together is not your own doing. You couldn't earn your way to God. You can't do enough to get to God. It's the gift of God. And so Paul, again, he could just end it at the verse eight, right? He could just say this, right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, period. But then he like does a remix. Like he repeats himself. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. He like writes it again because he knows is a struggle for humanity. We think we can save or correct ourselves. In this passage, Paul gives a very specific order that God moves in. He says, the gospel starts with grace, moves to faith, then results in our works, not the other way around. Not what religion says. It says where you start with work, it builds your faith, then it results in God giving you grace. No, the gospel is this, it starts with grace. It's a gift that leads to your faith that produces works in your life. And there can be no other order. When you put works before grace, then you have self-righteousness. The gospel teaches that there is nothing you can do to earn God's grace. That's why it's called a gift. Grace means gift. If you earned it, it wouldn't be grace. And if you're dead in your sins, how could you ever do anything to receive God's or to do something to earn God's grace? The religious mindset believes you have to do right for God to love you. The gospel mindset is that he's done it all for you. Many of us may think the teachings of Jesus are like a karma spirituality. Karma says that you get what you deserve. And in a small sense, that's how the world works, right? The Proverbs teaches that you reap what you sow, but the gospel is a message. The good news of Jesus is a message that we get so much more than what we deserve. That God's love for us is too great to be limited to what you deserve. This is the beauty of what we see in the gospel. So how do you tell if you're believing in the gospel or religion? How would you know if you were to diagnose your own heart today? Let me ask you this. When you sin do you believe you deserve less affection from God? If when you sin, you think I deserve less affection and love from God, then there's corners of your heart that have not yet fully embraced the gospel for all of life. If you think when you sin, you got to tuck your head and you feel shame and guilt and you're like, man, I kind of got to like pray harder now or I got to, you know, take more moments before communion because I kind of got to earn God back. Or maybe if I go a couple days without sinning or looking at the thing or doing that thing, then maybe that kind of earns my way back. If you think you deserve less affection from God, you don't quite get the gospel. Do you feel like you gotta get yourself cleaned up so that God will love you again? Do you believe that when you sin, God is gonna punish some other area of your life? But God has poured out all his wrath on Jesus so he could pour out all his love on you. Again, religion says, obey and God will love you more. But Jesus says, God loves you completely because of what I've done for you that you must believe by faith. Grace is a gift. It's not dependent on what we do. So think about it. What's the converse of this statement? Not a result of works so that no one can boast. What's the inverse of that? The inverse is I am as result of works so that I can boast, right? If you feel that God's love for you if you feel like God's love for you is only because you obey, then you can boast about it. It leaves you with some smug self-righteousness, but God wants to tell the world of who he is. And so he does all the work and you believe it. Guys, I'm repeating this over and over and trying to look at it from different angles, because I want you to see how this radically shapes everything for you. But again, sometimes even as a genuine Christian, it's hard to tell if you're daily believing the gospel in your heart. So let me ask you three questions real briefly. Three questions to help you find those religious corners of your heart that's actually hurting you. Let me ask you this. What makes you think, uh, what makes you feel better than other people? Sometimes we struggle with superiority at work or we think that we're better or smarter than people. What makes you feel that you're better than other people? Maybe it's intellectually, politically, or in the workplace, Here's what the gospel does. If you struggle with feeling better than other people, the gospel eliminates any sort of superiority you have because you realize that the intellect you do have is grace. Yes, you worked hard. Yes, you studied hard. Yes, you put diligence, but who gave you the diligence? Who helped nurture the ethic that's in you? God's grace. I'm not taking away from your effort or your credit. I'm just telling you how you got that effort and credit to get there. It's God's grace. So the gospel eliminates your feeling of superiority because you realize that if I am smarter, it's God who gave that grace. Let me ask you this. What are you afraid of people finding out about in your life? What are you afraid about people finding out in your life? Do you have a secret that you don't feel like you can disclose to your friends, your roommates, your community group? And you sort of rarely talk about with God, but you kind of just think you're just gonna struggle in this secret. Are you trying to manage perceptions because you base your worth as a person on what other people think. So you just nurse this secret that shows you, you haven't quite embraced the depths of the gospel because God sees all, invites all of you to him, loves every piece of you and wants you to live in his grace and not in that area of sin. So that's why a Christian can be honest about their failures. If you spend time with some of the older Christians in our church, you'll hear them talk about the failures of their marriage or the failures of their parenting. Why can they just embrace and talk about their failures? Because they know that their worth is not attributed or connected to their failure. That God has loved them, forgive them for it. So they can talk about that. But if you feel like you can't be honest with who you are, then you may not know that God invites all of you to come to him. And you don't have to play the image game with people in our church because we all know that we're broken people with a heart condition that God wants us to be saved from. Last question, how do you react to suffering or pain in your life? How do you react to suffering or pain in your life? Because if you're, if you're going through pain or suffering in your life and you're asking, what have I done to deserve this? God, I, I pray, I'm, I'm kind, I'm a good person. Why are you treating me like this? Then you're having this religious mindset you believe that you're standing with God and what happens in your life is based on how good of a person you were, what you did. So if you're struggling with God, like, why are you doing this to me? And like, I was a good person and I'm trying hard for you. Like, why are you treating me like this? Then you have some religious pockets in your heart thinking that if I do good, God will give me good. If I do bad, God will do bad to me. That's a religious mindset because we learned earlier, right? In chapter one, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he keeps blessing and blessing and blessing. And part of that blessing is love and goodness and care for the rest of your life, even in brokenness and even in hardships. My friends, the the good news of pain and suffering is that God promises to work out good from that pain or suffering. But if you think that pain or suffering is there because maybe you did or did not do something in your life, then maybe there's a religious pocket there that God wants to bring you out of. You still might be living in a works based mindset. And so today I would encourage you look to the cross of Jesus and see all the work is already done. You can't make God love you anymore through your good deeds, and you can't make God love you any less because of things that you've done. His love doesn't shift when you shift. Does that make sense? God's care, his oversight, his benevolence doesn't shift up or down based on what you do. It's just infinite, great, rich love for you. And then here's how we'll end with this last question. What are you saved for? And then we're gonna study the rest of Ephesians because it answers this question. This is the turning point in the book. It says, here's all the things I blessed you with. Here's where you came from. Here's what I saved you with. And then here's what I'm saving you for. And the rest of the book is all about what I saved you for. It's the purpose in which I saved you. And he tells us in a summary sentence in verse 10, he says, here's a summary sentence that I'm going to pack for the rest of the book. And here it is. We were saved for his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for for good works. Not we're saved by good works. We're saved for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says here that we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek term poema. It only appears one other time in the New Testament. And this same word is where we get our English word for poem. It means then that we are carefully crafted by God as a beautiful, well-written poem, meaning that you and I are a story, a telling of God's grace. That's what you're saved for. Do you realize that friends? So that no one may boast in self so that we may be a poema, a poem, a story, a telling of God's grace. This is what your story is. This is what your life is. Whatever your job is, is a platform for you to communicate his grace and truth and love to the world. You're not first a doctor, not first a mom, not first a student. You're first, if you're a Christian, a poema. You're a story, you're a telling of God's grace to the world. You're a workmanship, you're a craft. Your hardships, your story, your sin, everything is a beautiful crafting in God saying, look at what I can do. I can take someone as trashy and terrible as Aaron with all the relational harm he's done to people in his life, the relationships that he has hurt, the people that he has um, said terrible things to, done terrible things to. This guy, I can transform his heart. Watch me do it. The guy who didn't want to get married, thought pastoring was stupid, swore I'd never plant a church because those people are dumb. I would never foster care and adopt. God has changed my life. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying you should ascribe to me, but I'm saying this was my mindset before and God changed it from this. I'm still apologizing to people that I've harmed in the past that realize I'm a Christian now. They're like, you're even a pastor? They even allow people like you to become pastors? Poema. Poema. I'm a story of God's grace. I'm asking for forgiveness. Guys, this, this is my life. This is your life. I am by no means perfect. I've not reached this place, but I'm a poema. You are a poema of God's grace. You are created for the good works of your life. So everything that you do, friends, is not about your job. It's not about your marriage. It's not about your parenting. It's not about your school. It's not about your degree. All of that you do is to be aimed at telling something about God. And when you do that, there's a rich joy and a goodness and a a deeper heart level happiness when we live that way because we were designed to live that way. So let me finish out by reading a piece of Romans 12 to really depict the culture that the gospel creates. And guys, I pray for this in our church as we think about Romans 12, that this would happen in our hearts because when we're saved by grace through faith, this is what the gospel does in our hearts, guys. This is what I want to happen. It's moralism roots out our hearts. We become insufferable people. We become self righteous. But when the gospel takes roots, this is what happens. This is what I want for Coa Brighton. It says in Romans 12, 9 through 18, let love be genuine. I want us to abhor what's evil, we will hold fast to what is good. We will love one another with a brother and sisterly affection. We will outdo one another in showing honor. We will not be slothful in our zeal. We'll be fervent in the spirit. We'll serve the Lord and each other. Verse 12, we will rejoice in hope. We'll be patient in tribulation. We'll be constant in prayer for one another. We'll contribute to the needs of the saints in our church and our community around us. We'll seek to show hospitality to our Christian and non-Christian neighbors. We will bless those who persecute us. We will bless them and not curse them. We will rejoice with others in our church who rejoice. But when they weep, we will also weep with them. We'll be a church that lives in harmony with one another. We won't be haughty, but we'll associate with the lowly because Jesus associated with us. We won't be wise in our own sight. We won't repay anyone for the evil they've done, but we will give and do what's honorable in the sight of all. And then it says this, if possible, we will be able to live peaceably with all. Guys, in the culture that we live in, that's outraged at everything, tries to cancel everything. This passage tastes like, Honey, it's sweet, it's warm. And this is what the gospel does. It transforms a people like this. Guys, what if we took that message and like Poema, we were to share this poem of our life. You would share the good news of how God transformed you from your condition by his grace for a purpose. Guys, Would we live like this, this is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to understand our salvation. We had a condition God met us there. He pulled us out by his grace. He gave us the ability to believe and trust in him. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm setting you out now on a mission. So as we conclude, friends, who needs to hear your poema, your story to hear the grace of the gospel in your life? This is the reason why you were saved for the good works of being God's craftsmanship to tell the world of the story of Jesus. I know today was a longer message Uh, It's because I'm 33 and I'm getting older and I forget how time works now, I guess. Um, But I want to make sure that we understood that. That's why it took two weeks, church, to unpack one passage of scripture because it's that important for you to understand, guys, where where we came from, what happened in our hearts, in our lives through Jesus and what we're to do as a result. Church, let us never forget this. Let's be a reminder for our hearts. Let us live this way for God's glory and your own good. Let's pray. Oh,